Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. by. This is the conference operator. Welcome to the TC Energy fourth quarter 2021 results conference call. As a reminder, I would like to remind you all participants are in listen-only mode and the conference is being recorded. After the presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. To join the question queue, you may press star then 1 on your telephone keypad. Should you need assistance during the conference call, you may signal an operator by pressing star and zero. I would now like to turn the conference over to David Moneta, Vice President, Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Thanks very much, and good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to TC Energy's 2021 fourth quarter conference call. Joining me today are Francois Poirier, President and Chief Executive Officer, Joel Hunter, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer, Stan Chapman, President, U.S. and Mexico Natural Gas Pipelines, Bevan Worspa, Executive Vice President, Strategy and Corporate Development, and Group Executive, Canadian Natural Gas and Liquids Pipelines, Greg Grant, President, Canadian Natural Gas Pipelines, Richard Pryor, President, Liquids Pipelines, Corey Hessen, President of our Power Storage and Origination, and Glenn Manus, Vice President and Controller. Francois and Joel will begin today with some comments on our financial results and certain other company developments. A copy of the slide presentation that will accompany their remarks is available on our website in the investor section under events and presentations. Following their remarks, we will take questions from the investment community. In order to provide everyone with an equal opportunity to participate, we ask that you limit yourself to two questions. If you're a member of the media, please contact Jamie Harding after this call. Before Francois begins, I'd like to remind you that our remarks today will include forward-looking statements that are subject to important risks and uncertainties. For more information on these risks and uncertainties, please see the reports filed by TC Energy with Canadian Securities Regulators and with the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission. And finally, during this presentation, we may refer to measures such as comparable earnings, comparable earnings per common share, comparable EBITDA, and comparable funds generated from operations. These and certain other comparable measures are considered to be non-GAAP measures. As a result, they may not be comparable to similar measures presented by other entities. These measures are used to provide additional information on TC Energy's operating performance, liquidity, and its ability to generate funds to finance its operations. With that, I'll now turn the call over to Francois. Thanks, David. And good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for joining us today. As highlighted earlier today in our fourth quarter news release, I'm pleased to report that 2021 was another very successful year for TC Energy. Our $100 billion portfolio of high-quality, long-life energy infrastructure assets continued to produce strong operating and financial results. During the year, we placed $4.1 billion of assets into service, and we sanctioned approximately $7 billion of new projects. We also progressed numerous long-term energy transition growth initiatives in renewables, hydrogen, and CCUS, 
that will position us for future success regardless of the pace or direction of energy transition. We continued our focus on expanding our organizational capabilities in key areas like power and storage, innovation, and stakeholder relations. And finally, we released our 2021 report on sustainability, which includes targets for all 10 of our sustainability commitments. Notably, we set ambitious Scope 1 and Scope 2 GHG reduction targets. Our goal is to reduce our emission intensity 30% by 2030 to position the, and to position the company to achieve net zero emissions from our operations by 2050. So operationally, the demand for our services remains strong and our assets performed extremely well. This was evidenced by the volumes transported across our network. For example, our NGTL system in Alberta reached a decade-level uh, high for average export flows and set an all-time record on intra-basin delivery of 8.1 BCF on January 5th of 2022. A similar story in the U.S., where we saw increased flows across most of our natural gas pipeline assets in 2021. The robust volumes continued into early 2022, and we set an all-time send-out record on January 20th of 34.9 BCF across our U.S. network, and that represents approximately one quarter of total U.S. daily supply. Same in our liquids pipelines, where our Keystone system achieved record throughput of 602,000 barrels per day in 2021, up 6% from 2020. And in power and storage, the Bruce Power Facility delivered 86% plant availability, and we also had 98.9% peak availability on our cogeneration assets through the 2021 weather extremes. So what does that mean? It means our strong operating performance translated into strong financial results. Excluding certain specific items, comparable earnings reached a record $4.2 billion, or $4.27 per common share in 2021, compared to $3.9 billion, or $4.20 a year earlier. Comparable EBITDA of $9.4 billion and comparable funds generated from operations of $7.4 billion were both similar to last year's results. However, we achieved these record results despite the impact of a weaker U.S. dollar, which impacted comparable EBITDA by approximately $400 million. These results reflect the strong performance of our legacy assets, as well as contributions from the approximately $4 billion of new assets we placed into service in 2021. Looking forward, we are advancing a $24 billion capital program. This includes approximately $7 billion of new high-quality growth opportunities that we sanctioned in 2021, including the Columbia Modernization 3 program and the Bruce Power Unit 3 MCR program. Importantly, the entire $24 billion program is consistent with our historical risk and return preferences. It's underpinned by long-term contracts, or cost of service regulation and expected 
to deliver a weighted average unlevered after-tax IRR of approximately 8% on the entirety of the portfolio. Looking beyond our current capital program, the opportunity set that lies ahead of us is vast. Our substantial origination capabilities position us to capture many similar high-quality opportunities as we continue to deliver the energy people need while decarbonizing our own assets footprint. This includes the ongoing in-corridor expansion, modernization, and maintenance of our regulated natural gas pipeline network. It also includes the Bruce Power Life Extension Program and the Project 2030 Upgrade Initiative at Bruce to achieve peak site output of 7,000 megawatts. As we've mentioned previously, we're evaluating proposals in response to our RFI for renewables to electrify the U.S. portion of our base keystone system. The response has been overwhelmingly positive, and we expect to finalize contracts in the first half of 2022. Now, associated with the RFI, we have identified a meaningful origination opportunity to sell carbon-free energy products and services to the industrial and oil and gas sectors for aggregation of load that's proximate to our own in-corridor demand, thereby enhancing our return on this renewable activity. We're also progressing initiatives for two pumped storage projects. We expect to make a final investment decision this year on the Canyon Creek project in Alberta which has a capital cost of approximately $300 million. And we continue to progress the development of the Ontario Pump Storage Project at, with an estimated $4 billion investment that would provide 1,000 megawatts of flexible, clean energy to Ontario's electricity system. Beyond that, we are working on numerous opportunities, including carbon transportation and sequestration with Pembina clean energy projects with Irving Oil, and large-scale hydrogen production hubs with Nikola and Hyzon. As a result, we are well positioned to sanction more than $5 billion of new projects in each of the next several years with risk-adjusted return profiles consistent with historical levels. Looking forward, our $24 billion secured capital program gives us line of sight to an average annual growth rate in EBITDA of 5% through 2026. This outlook reflects our current portfolio of high-quality, long-life assets and secured projects expected to enter into service in that period of time. Having said that, we continue to see the potential for incremental growth to the extent we're able to originate and place into service additional in-corridor projects, secure capital light opportunities, and realize further cost savings. So based on the strength of our financial performance and our promising outlook for the future, TC Energy's Board of Directors declared a first quarter 2022 dividend of 90 cents per common share, which is equivalent to $3.60 per share on an annual basis. This represents a 3.4% increase over the amount declared in 2021 and is the 22nd consecutive year that our board has raised the dividend. Based on the confidence we have in our future outlook, 
We expect to continue to grow the dividend at an average annual rate of 3 to 5% per annum. Now, finally, as I highlighted at our Investor Day in December, our vision is to be the premier energy infrastructure company in North America now and in the future. To help us realize our vision, we've set the following priorities for 2022, which we will report against throughout the year. First, safety is our number one value. We take our responsibility to safely deliver the energy people need every day very seriously. Next, our goal is to continually increase the return on invested capital. We'll achieve this by optimizing our existing operations through cost savings, as well as innovative products and services that enhance our revenues. We also expect to place approximately $6.5 billion of assets into service in 2022. And our goal is also to sanction an additional $5-plus billion of high-quality growth opportunities. As always, we will fund our capital program prudently to ensure we maintain our financial strength and flexibility. And finally, we will progress our sustainability targets, including GHG emission intensity reductions. We will also continue to enhance our organizational capabilities necessary to prosper irrespective of the pace and direction energy transition takes. Before I turn the call over to Joel, I'd like to mention a few recent management changes. Bevan Wurzba's role has expanded to Executive Vice President, Strategy and Corporate Development, and Group Executive, Canadian Natural Gas and Liquids Pipelines. Reporting to Bevan will be Greg Grant, President of Canadian Natural Gas Pipelines, and Richard Pryor, President of Liquids Pipelines. This follows the news that Tracy Robinson has been appointed President and Chief Executive Officer of Canadian National Railway. I'd like to thank Tracy for her contribution over the years and wish her well in her new role. While we will miss Tracy, this seamless transition highlights the strength of our succession planning efforts and the depth of our organization. Each of these individuals were identified in our leadership succession planning process over the last many years. I'm confident that Bevan, Greg, and Richard, along with the rest of our leadership team, have the experience and the skills necessary to achieve our goals. Now I'll turn the call over to Joel, who'll provide more detail on our fourth quarter financial results and outlook. Thanks, Francois, and good afternoon, everyone. As Francois mentioned, our assets continue to perform very well. Our strong operational and financial results continue to reflect our diversified, low-risk business strategy and demonstrate the criticality of our unparalleled asset footprint. As outlined in our results issued earlier today, net income attributable to common shares was $1.1 billion or $1.14 per share in the fourth quarter compared to $1.1 billion or $1.20 per share for the same period in 2020. Fourth quarter 2021 results as well as the corresponding period in 2020 included certain specific items which are discussed further in our fourth quarter 2021 financial highlights release. These specific items are excluded from comparable earnings. Comparable earnings for the fourth quarter were $1 billion or $1.6 per common share compared to $1.1 billion or $1.15 per common share in 2020. In the fourth quarter, 
comparable EBITDA from our five operating segments of $2.4 billion was 3% higher compared to $2.3 billion earned during the same period in 2020, despite currency translation headwinds. Detailed variance explanations for each business unit can be found in our financial highlights release, so I'll just comment on a few principal changes year over year. U.S. gas pipeline's comparable EBITDA increased compared to fourth quarter 2020, primarily due to higher earnings from Columbia Gas as a result of increased transportation rates effective February 1, 2021. Liquids pipeline's comparable EBITDA declined mainly due to lower volumes on the U.S. Gulf Coast section of the Keystone Pipeline system. For all our businesses with U.S. dollar-denominated income, including U.S. and Mexico gas pipelines and parts of liquids pipelines, EBITDA was translated into Canadian dollars using an average exchange rate of 126 in fourth quarter 2021, compared to 130 for the same period in 2020. Therefore, while our overall U.S. dollar-denominated comparable EBITDA increased in the fourth quarter, the year-over-year weakening of the U.S. dollar was a considerable drag on comparative 2021 Canadian dollar-reported EBITDA. Now, that said, the corresponding impact on comparable earnings was not significant, as our U.S. dollar-denominated revenue streams are, in part, naturally hedged with the residual exposure actively managed on a rolling three-year forward basis. I will now speak to a few of the primary variances below EBITDA. Interest expense included in comparable earnings was higher year-over-year, largely due to the cessation of capitalized interest for the Keystone XL pipeline project and long-term debt issuances, partially offset by the foreign exchange impact from a weaker U.S. dollar on translation of U.S. dollar-denominated interest. Income tax expense included in comparable earnings for fourth quarter increased compared to 2020, primarily due to higher flow through income taxes on Canadian rate-regulated pipelines. During the fourth quarter, comparable funds generated from operations were $2.1 billion, bringing the total to $7.4 billion for the year. As we exited 2021, our liquidity position remains strong. We continue to have access to capital markets on compelling terms and remain focused on bolstering our financial position over time. Looking forward, this graphic illustrates our forecasted sources and uses of funds for 2022 through 2024. Starting in the left column, our total requirements over the three years are projected to be approximately $25.5 billion, reflecting capital expenditures, including maintenance capital of $14.5 billion and dividends of $11 billion. The second column highlights expected internally generated cash flow of $22.5 billion, leaving a residual need of approximately $3 billion depicted in the two far right columns that we expect to fund through a combination of cash on hand, commercial paper, incremental debt, hybrids, and Keystone XL project recoveries. Turning now to our outlook for 2022, additional information is contained in our 2021 annual management's discussion and analysis. Overall, we expect 2022 comparable EBITDA to be modestly higher than 2021. Canadian natural gas pipelines EBITDA is anticipated to be higher mainly due to the continued growth in the NGTL system, partially offset by the reduction of flow-through depreciation on the Canadian mainline as one segment was fully depreciated in 2021. As a reminder, we believe earnings are a more appropriate measure than EBITDA when assessing financial performance for a Canadian gas business. U.S. natural gas pipelines EBITDA is expected to be consistent 
primarily due to an anticipated increase in transportation rates on A&R, subject to the outcome of the Section 4 rate case filed with the FERC, as well as expansion projects on A&R and Columbia Gulf. These positive developments are expected to be partially offset by higher operational costs and property taxes. In Mexico, we expect EBITDA to be higher year over year due to increased contributions from the Villa de Reyes pipeline expected to be phased into service throughout the year. In liquids, EBITDA is anticipated to be lower due to continued challenging market conditions impacting volumes on the U.S. Gulf Coast section of the Keystone Pipeline system and decreased margins in the liquids marketing business. Comparable EBITDA for the power and storage segment is expected to be generally consistent with 2021. We anticipate Bruce Power Equity Income will be similar in 2022 as the impact of its contract price increase for the Unit 3 MCR program is expected to be offset by greater non-MCR planned outage days and operating costs. Bruce Power Availability, excluding Unit 6, which continues its MCR program, is expected to be in the low 80% range in 2022. Other items impacting earnings include a lower average foreign exchange hedge rate on our 2022 U.S. dollar-denominated comparable earnings, along with higher anticipated interest expense on long-term debt issuances net of maturities. In 2022, our forecasted U.S. dollar income is largely hedged at 126 compared to 135 in 2021. Excluding Canadian rate-regulated pipelines, where income taxes are a flow-through item and thus quite variable, along with equity AFEDC income in U.S. gas pipelines, we expect our 2022 full-year normalized tax rate to be in the mid to high teens. Our exposure to interest rates and commodity price variability remains quite limited in our diversified portfolio given approximately 95% of our EBITDA comes from contracted and regulated assets, which include various flow-through and sharing mechanisms. As a result, we expect our 2022 comparable earnings per share to be consistent with our record results in 2021. Now, in terms of capital spending, we expect to invest approximately $6.5 billion in 2022 on growth projects, maintenance capital, and contributions to equity investments, with a majority earmarked for NGTL system expansions, U.S. natural gas pipelines projects, the Bruce Power Life Extension Program, and normal course maintenance capital. Despite a few headwinds, which include the impact of a weaker U.S. dollar, we remain confident in our ability to deliver EBITDA growth of 5% through 2026, though our growth will not be linear. Our outlook is underpinned by our $24 billion secured capital program that is expected to produce unlevered after-tax returns of approximately 8%. We also have numerous other levers to build on that growth rate in each of our business units. Similar to today, approximately 95% of our EBITDA will continue to come from regulated and long-term contracted assets. So in closing, our strong operational and financial results continue to reflect our diversified, low-risk business strategy and demonstrate the criticality of our unparalleled asset footprint. Our enduring business model, financial flexibility, organizational capabilities, and extensive portfolio of assets position us to capitalize on a vast opportunity set which will continue to allow us to serve today's needs in the evolving energy mix of the future. Now, looking forward, we're well-equipped to fund our current capital program with a combination of internally generated cash flow and debt capacity, which will allow us to maintain our solid financial position and flexibility. Our expected growth in EBITDA of 5% or more 
will provide us with the ability to enhance our already conservative payout ratios, moderate our leverage, and continue to deliver superior long-term total shareholder returns. That's the end of my prepared remarks. I will now turn the call back over to David for the Q&A. Thanks, Joel. Uh, just a reminder, before I turn it over to the conference coordinator for questions from the investment community, we ask that you limit yourself to two questions. With that, I'll turn it back to the conference coordinator. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. To join the question queue, you may press star, then one on your telephone keypad. You will hear a tone acknowledging your request. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing any keys. To withdraw your question, please press star, then two. We will pause for a moment as callers join the queue. Our first question comes from Ben Pham of BMO. Please go ahead. Okay, thanks. Uh, good morning. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, on a couple of questions on the power business. Um, you, you mentioned with the, the RFI and the renewable procurement, and you, you add in some, some additional origination. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, how, how does that uh, result in higher returns and impact on your EBITDA? Is that, is that only under the assumption that TRAPS uh, invests equity? alongside these uh, uh, these power companies? Thanks, Ben. It's Francois. I'll, I'll uh, kick this off, and I'll ask uh, Corey to provide a little bit of additional detail. Um, you know, by virtue of our ability to aggregate um, load in the area um, of our pump stations on the base keystone system, uh, number one, um, we can uh, create economies of scale from being able to deliver uh, power at a, at a lower cost for everyone's benefit. Um, secondly, um, we're able as TC Energy, without having necessarily ownership in the assets, as the PPA counterparty, to um, uh, partial off uh, different amounts of load um, to the different counterparties on, uh, on the purchasing side. So we might be uh, the counterparty on a 100 uh, megawatt wind farm and find three different counterparties. Uh, that each want, let's say, 25 megawatts um, for their own purposes. And uh, we're the intermediary that stands in between. So without allocating any long-term capital but util utilizing working capital, um, we can create some margin for ourselves to enhance our returns um, in addition to um, um, uh, meeting our own demand. Um, we will, in some instances, have the option to acquire equity in um, the uh, facilities themselves at COD. Uh, we won't be taking any construction risk, um, and we'll consider those on a case-by-case -case basis um, as um, you know, those types of investments will have to compete for capital um, with other parts um, of, our, of our business. Um, Corey, I'll throw it over to you for... Uh, some additional detail and proof points on the scale of what we've seen in terms of aggregation. Hi, Ben. It's Corey here. Thanks for the question. Uh, just two points to make real briefly. Number one, uh, one of the most expensive parts of the process uh, development for renewable assets, as you know, is to find and contract with, with customers. And because we have those customers already in corridor, we're able to reduce our costs pretty dramatically as we think about reaching those customers and, and uh, closing out transaction opportunities for us and also helping our customers on their uh, decarbonization journey. The second uh, you know, proof point that I'd sort of lay out to you there is because we are in 
in this in this sector in the industrial sector many of our customers um, already have long-standing relationships with us so we understand the t's and c's and some of the other unique parts of their business that's going to make the transactions move a little bit more smoothly and just as a proof point you know right now we have approximately 1.3 gigawatts of uh, offtake secured uh, in loi stage and we are now in definitive negotiations with those counterparties in addition to the internal load that we've already worked on. Okay, I got it. So, it, so at some some extent, it's similar to the some of the contracts in, in Alberta that we, we've been seeing you engage in. Um, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Um, and then my, my follow-up is: anything you need doing on the power marketing side? I mean, in terms of expanding it, or is, can you run any everything out of Alberta? Hey, Ben, it's Corey again. Uh, we currently and have historically done our power marketing out of both Alberta and Houston to service our our Canadian and U.S. customers. Those should be plenty sufficient for our continued operations moving forward and continuing to uh, service the load that we have internally with our existing customers. Okay, great. That's very helpful. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Our next question comes from Linda Ezergalis of TD Securities. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you. I'm just wondering if you could help me understand um, the status of any white space in your business, an update on where it is in your pipeline network, and how might any sort of increasing costs um, um, on the operating side um, kind of offset uh, from a margin perspective um, how much uh, lift we might see in the next couple of years as that white space fills up. Thanks, Linda. I'll ask Joel to take the inflation uh, part of that question first, and then I'll come back around to white spaces. So thanks, Linda, uh, for the question. Um, with regard to um, inflation, because we get asked this a lot, uh, you know, the key takeaway is that the impact of inflation remains quite limited. And that's a result of, you know, 95% of our EBITDA is underpinned, obviously, by, you know, contracted and regulated assets. And this obviously includes various, you know, flow-through and cost-sharing mechanisms. So what we see is that about 20% of our operating costs uh, would be, you know, subject to uh, inflation in the near term. And so a key sensitivity to use is for every 100 basis point uh, change in the inflation rate. Um, it results in approximately less than $10 million pre-tax impact to our bottom line. And as to the second part of your question, Linda, so what you you know what you hear from Joel is that we have very little exposure to uh, to inflation in terms of our operating costs. Uh, in terms of white spaces, you know, I think if you look at our uh, natural gas pipeline footprint, for example, you know, we have plenty of uh, in corridor growth uh, that'll be derived from our leading position in the WCSB and the Appalachian basins. We don't see. Um, a great imperative for us to, to be looking to serve other basins. Those are the two basins, for example, through uh, um, uh, COVID and some of the you know demand destruction that occurred that performed very well through throughout um, the, that period of time. So we're very confident in those basins' ability to deliver. Uh, on the power side, I think you'll see us growing our uh, contractual position and our um, uh, you know long-term capital investments. In the U.S., uh, we have a terrific footprint uh, and opportunity to electrify our own consumption on the gas pipeline side. 
the regulatory construct in the U.S. is more conducive to us um, uh, investing and electrifying our own compressor stations in the U.S. in the near term. Uh, that may change in Canada as well, but for the, for the time being, I think we'll be focusing our capital investment in, in power and storage with respect to renewables in the U.S., and that's to complement you know, the roughly billion dollars a year we're going to spend uh, at Bruce Power. Thank you. And just as a quick follow-up on your Ontario pump storage opportunity, um, have there been any recent discussions with anyone or any activity on that front, or uh, might there be a bit of a pause this year given the pending provincial and municipal elections that we'll be seeing uh, in Ontario? Hi, Linda. It's Corey again. Uh, we are in process in, in the province. We are on, working on a number of major fronts. Uh, we have begun discussions with the ISO uh, in uh, accordance with phase two of their phased assessment process, and we are working uh, with the DND uh, with uh, a continued site assessment uh, work um, uh, in Meaford. And then finally, we are working with our other indigenous stakeholders and partners, such as the SON, to finalize our partnership going forward uh, on this project. Our next question comes from Robert Kwan of RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Great. Good afternoon. Um, I can just ask about your capital allocation around the balance sheet and leverage. And you talked about your balance sheet as being a strategic enabler for either large projects um, or acquisitions. And I'm just wondering, you know, how do you envision getting there as you think about the likelihood at least that you're putting forward of, of bringing in five plus billion dollars of new projects uh, a year um, in terms of getting to that position where you can use that balance sheet opportunistically. Is it either or, or do you see other levers you can pull to get to, to whatever that target might be? I think Robert, it's Francois here. Um, you know, our plan is to, uh, as you see the sources and uses over the next several years, um, we'll be keeping debt our total debt relatively steady and using internally generated cash to fund both the dividend and our capital program. So in essence, you'll see us growing into uh, the targeted um, uh, long-term leverage of 4.75 debt to EBITDA. Uh, you know, looking at the materials we presented at our investor day um, uh, and uh, ascribing an average 5% EBITDA growth over that period of time, we'd get well below 4.75 by the end of that five-year period. But we did also say that we expect to be able to sanction additional project as we go. Uh, I can't, I cannot tell you that there's a specific number at which we'll say, okay, we've got, uh, we've got dry powder and when an opportunity comes along, we'll, we'll be able to act on it. I tell you that generally speaking, um, retaining more free cash to invest in, uh, whether it's M&A or I would argue, um, you know, it's really important to be agile and nimble around energy transition as we compete to help our customers lower their um, their own emissions. Um, you know, having uh, a strong balance sheet and an ability to respond quickly to their needs is really important. So it's not just with respect to M&A. It's also uh, in terms of uh, developing uh, uh, projects around energy transition and um, uh, so, uh, you know, again, I think it's just a, a, a directional preference 
And uh, you know, as I said, we do expect to be adding projects over the next few years. Um, and uh, we sort of see $5 billion as a reasonable run rate for us uh, to be able to live within our means going forward. That's great. Um, if I can finish with a topic related to the reselling of power and that being looking like an asset light strategy. Just wondering, is that a specific strategy to, to this business? Or, um, or when you pair it with your 2022 priority of improving the return on invested capital, is, is this a strategy that you might consider more broadly, whether that's you know, something like monetizing portions of your existing assets but remaining the operator and, say, taking back management and, and other fees? Uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great observation, Robert. Um, you know, when it comes to the decisions we'll make in the future around investing equity in some of the renewable, renewable projects that we're sanctioning, uh, those projects are going to have to compete with, um, you know, other uses of capital within our capital stack. So, um, you know, looking to aggregate and parcel out and gen to load match load for third parties is a way for us to improve our returns and, and take a little bit of an asset light approach. Uh, if you look at what we're doing in Mexico, if you look at what we're doing with our liquids business, we've got capital in the ground, um, you know, in, in VDR, you know, achieving completion this year uh, with the southern portion of our Keystone system from, from Cushing down to the Gulf Coast. The capital has already been deployed and our job now is actually to uh, increase the utilization through commercial means and um, you know uh, marketing means as well. So if we're able to do that, we are going to be able to improve the return on invested capital on on the existing capital that's been invested. And uh, you know that's a theme that we're going to be focusing on over the next couple of years uh, to uh, you know help us across all of the different metrics Im improve our leverage, retain more cash. Uh, and invest in uh, in energy transition. Our next question comes from Robert Catelier of CIBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Yes, I'd like um, for you to uh, walk me through the strategy and pricing the next phase of uh, the Bruce MCR. On the one hand, uh, you've highlighted the COVID-19 impact on cost and schedule contingency for Unit 6. Uh, but you're also seeking recovery for the force measure uh, provisions. What level of certainty do you have for uh, recovery of those costs that gives you the confidence in the final cost and schedule estimate you submitted for uh, Unit 3 and same thing for the preliminary cost submitted for Unit 4? Hi, Robert. It's Corey. Um, you know, as, as we think about uh, Bruce Power, you know, I, I think about it as, as definitely being, you know, the, uh, the poster child for our high-quality, long-life assets. And so when we go through the process of the MCRs, we use a very systematic approach to determining each one of those factors. We work closely with uh, all of our stakeholders, including the ISO, to make sure that we are adequately evaluating each uh, phase of the MCRs and making sure that we are inclusive of all uh, reasonable outcomes and costs that will be part of that. I feel like our relationship uh, with the ISO and the stakeholders is quite good, and we have uh, included each uh, each component of the risks that were presented as a function of COVID as part of uh, that going forward. Now, that being said, the folks at, at Bruce Power have done a great job 
of being able to uh, plan well in advance. This isn't a process that just kicked off last year in December. It's actually a process that takes many years. And most of the uh, work that went into this has been a long time coming. So I feel like we're, we're in the right spot. We'll be in the right spot for the next uh, years to come. And we have a, a really strong relationship with the ISO to ensure that the, the citizens of Ontario receive uh, the most fairly priced carbon-free electrons available to them. Um, Corey, if you might also uh, help Robert with uh, the, the status of Unit 6, where we are with respect to cost and schedule, and the status of the, um, the force majeure uh, you know, applications that we made at the beginning of COVID. Yeah, thanks, Francois. Um, first, uh, we are on schedule and on budget for Unit 6. We expect that to uh, come in on schedule in, uh, in, in 2023 uh, as per plan. And um, with regards to the force majeure uh, uh, submittals, those are being uh, tabulated and we keep uh, very close uh, 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 records of all of the impacts and then we, we uh, submit those to the ISO in accordance with the terms and conditions of the EBITPRIA. So there'll be more to come on that in the coming months as we sort of exit exit this uh, this phase of the project. But right now, I would reinforce we are on schedule and on budget for Unit Six. Okay, that's helpful. That answers it. And just maybe a, a quick one on the finance side for for Joel. I just want to understand the status of the ATM, which I which I believe that program has expired, and um, whether or not you have any plans to to renew it. Thanks, Robert. Yeah, we have no plans to renew it. Uh, we put the ATM in place originally for Keystone XL, and we just left it there. Um, we have not used it, but it will expire, and we have no intentions to, to replace it. Our next question comes from Jeremy Tonnet of J.P. Morgan. Please go ahead. Hi, this is Stephen McGee stepping in for Jeremy. Um, really only one question from me, guys. Um, Early last month, we took a, a closer look at the Bakken, and we found that with increasing gores and, and reduced flaring, NBPL is running near full uh, nameplate capacity, at least on a heat content perspective. Um, and seeing as how ethane rejection extraction dynamics play a, a larger role on egress, just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on the NBPL pipeline, basin egress, and just general views on the basin. Um, so thank you. Stephen, this is Stan. I could address that, and uh, you, you kind of hit some of the high points already. Uh, Bakken production is now pushing close to 3 BCF a day, which is what it was prior to the uh, pandemic. And if you look at the mix between uh, Bakken volumes versus Canadian volumes coming into the northern border system, it's about that 72% Bakken weighted, which is the highest ratio it's been in the past uh, three, four, five years or so. We have seen an increase in processing and um, ethane extraction capacity in the region, which is not unexpected given the fact that ethane prices are somewhere in the 40 cent a gallon right now range. So you know, given all that, given the fact that uh, production is up, flaring is down, uh, we're actually very bullish on the need for there to be additional takeaway capacity out of the Bakken, uh, probably to the tune of about a half a BCF a day, give or take. And again, it's been uh, actively engaged with the with the Bakken producers. We think our, our bison pipeline is uniquely situated for a takeaway solution. And uh, don't be surprised if you see something coming out uh, along those lines later that this spring with respect to an open season. 
Got it. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thanks, David. Our next question comes from Rob Hope of Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Uh, afternoon, everyone. I uh, want to circle back on the renewable power energy transition business. You know, where do you see PC Energy's optimal uh, place to uh, enter the development uh, process there? You know, do you think it, it, it is the expectation that moving forward you'll, you'll want to focus on that asset light like you're doing in the uh, middle part of the U.S., or could we see more of a historical development focus similar to what you're doing in Ontario and, and Alberta? Hey, Rob, it's Corey. I, I think that the answer to your question is yes. I think we would take an all-of-the-above strategy, of really more focused on the jurisdiction that uh, the opportunity presents and the customers that we are trying to serve. So we, you see us with an early-stage development with some of our renewable assets, uh, specifically Canyon Creek or Meaford Pump, Pump Storage in, in, in Ontario, um, because of uh, a number of different reasons, not the least of which is, is, our, is our, uh, our, our assets in, in that particular jurisdiction. In the United States, I would think about it through the following lens, and that is the market has a great number of organizations that are very good at early stage development, and it would be difficult for TC Energy to replicate that, those development skills. But what we can do and where we can bring our expertise to bear is in contracting T's and C's and then connecting the load with our customers and both internal and long-term customers of our other businesses. And so I think it's going to be a variety of, uh, of a variety of different uh, choices there, but we do believe that we will own assets or portions of assets over time, and there will be assets where we will take the asset light approach as it meets our needs in that jurisdiction. Great, appreciate it, Keller. And then uh, as a follow-up, and maybe a little early just given where we are in the year, you know, if, if the annual goal is to sanction $5 billion worth of projects, as we look out to 2022, you know, what buckets or business lines are you seeing the greatest opportunities? And, you know, how much do you have high visibility that you'll be able to get uh, into the secured bucket uh, in 2022? Rob, it's Francois. I'll take that one. Uh, recall that, uh, you know, we have uh, a billion and a half to $2 billion annually of maintenance capital that uh, on which we can earn a return on and of capital uh, because we're investing in our regulated businesses, and so I think you can expect that uh, to uh, to continue. We've got you know good visibility on that occurring every year, really uh, throughout the the balance of the decade. And then it's well diversified across um, our various jurisdictions. I think you can expect a billion dollars um, uh, uh, plus of new projects in our gas franchises, uh, in you know combined between Canada and the U.S simply around um, uh, electrification of our own assets, reducing our own emissions, and um, uh, meeting uh, natural gas demand growth. I think one of the things I talked about in my prepared remarks is that you know, the evidence and the facts indicate that demand for natural gas in North America continues to grow, and we've, we've benefited from that. So, um, uh, and then in our power business, you know, we've talked about the RFI process uh, and the fact that we're aggregating incremental load and we're going to do some gentle load matching. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the opportunities on, uh, for Canyon Creek, uh, we'll be looking at sanctioning that $300 million project this year. 
as well as a number of other smaller projects uh, in, in different parts of the company. So it's spread around uh, a little bit, we're, which is good. We feel comfortable about the fact that we're not heavily reliant on any of our businesses to actually deliver that $5 billion per year. Having said that, we have a couple of large, sizable opportunities out there for us uh, to sanction, uh, potentially a phase two of CGL, uh, the Ontario Pump Storage Project, uh, of $4 billion. Uh, and then, of course, um, our efforts in Mexico working with, uh, in partnership with the CFE to potentially sanction additional infrastructure. So, um, you know, we've got lots of small in-corridor opportunities across our entire footprint, then when you add them together, that $5 billion is pretty visible, and then some larger opportunities on top of that. Our next question comes from Praneet Satish of Wells Fargo. Please go ahead. Thanks. Uh, good afternoon. On the ANR rate case, it looks like the requested ROE is 16% if I'm seeing it correctly. Just wondering how much of that is based on the, the regulatory environment and the, and the increase in perceived risk, I guess. What are the factors behind that number? As, uh, I think it's a bit higher than normal. Yeah, Pranish, this is Stan. Uh, actually, when we look at our, our proxy group, it's in the, the upper third range, so it's in that, that higher tier, but that does reflect the fact that all things equal, amongst our proxy group, A&R has a little bit more exposure to producers and, and therefore commodity prices and probably has a little bit more exposure to gas-on-gas uh, to -gas competition uh, with respect to deliveries of volumes into the, the mid-continent area. So um, not an outlier by any stretch, but it is in that upper third tier of our proxy group. Got it. Um, and then in terms of the, the bridge loan that's being provided to, to Coastal GasLink, can you comment on the, the time frame for when that would be repaid? And, and I guess I'm just wondering why you elected to provide funding yourself versus using additional um, bank debt, and then maybe also if you give us an update on the status of, of Coastal Gas Link, that would be great. So, Praneet, I'll start with that. It's Joel here, then I'll turn it over to, to Bevan. Um, as we mentioned before, the $3.3 billion uh, bridge loan is just to, you know, prove that there's sufficiency of funding for, for the project, as we've highlighted back at, in Q3. Uh, we view it as being temporary. Um, to the extent that we can actually uh, get an increase in guarantees so that we can then subsequently increase the credit facility that we have um, at uh, CGL at this point in time. So once again, we view it as being temporary, uh, the $3.3 billion. And as we've highlighted, we do earn uh, you know, a market return um, if we do lend funds um, into, into CGL. Uh, at year end, there was $238 million, I believe, outstanding on that $3.3 billion uh, facility. So it uh, will be in place until we get an increase in the, in the credit facility and then um, whatever is needed to, to get to bridge the funding, if you will, to the project completion um, will be determined. Yeah, Praneet, this is Bevan. Um, you know, we're making great progress um, in the field on the right-of-way. The beginning of the year, we're nearly at 60% complete in the field. Um, what, is, what is really clear to us is that the fundamentals that underpin the need for Coastal Gas Link and the LNG Canada uh, LNG facility have the need, needs for those projects have never been more robust. And, and so we've been working very closely with our, with our customers, LNGC Canada, and also um, with our equity partners uh, to position the project to, for a safe execution and be ahead of the LNG facility. So discussions are ongoing and uh, we're making great progress. So happy with the direction that the project's taken. 
Our next question comes from Michael Lapidus of Goldman Sachs. Please go ahead. Yeah, hey guys, thank you for taking my questions. Just curious, on Coastal GasLink, um, should we think about the potential cost increase as being a, a significant or material number, or is it, it was the disclosure you're giving of, hey, there's going to be costs, but it's not going to be in the billions of dollars range? And if it is a pretty sizable number, call it, I don't know, anything north of a billion, how does that impact the return you guys would earn on the project? Yeah, Michael, this is Bevan again. Um, you know, the w our shared objective with our customers is to deliver deliver the pipeline safely and get it in ahead of the LNG uh, plant that's being constructed right now. Um, the most complex parts of the project, um, in terms of the civil works, are behind us. Um, we're advancing very carefully with our with our contracting plans. So the the balance of the project received very strong line of sight to being able to be executed um, in a manner that mitigates the risks that are ahead. I'm not saying that those risks don't exist, um, but we have plans in place to ensure that we can deliver the project for our customer. Got it. And, and what's the process? At the the annual report disclosure in your press release today kind of talked about how there was kind of an ongoing negotiation or dispute over, I think it was cost and timeline, I don't remember off the top of my head. How did, what's the formal process for that getting resolved? Is it just a negotiation, is it arbitration, or, or some other methodology? Yeah, we're, we're in very constructive uh, dialogue with uh, LNGC uh, right now. Um, and that is just a process of commercial discussions with our customers to ensure that we maintain that alignment going forward on the project. Got it. Thank you, guys. Much appreciated. Thanks, Michael. Our next question comes from Brian Reynolds of UBS. Please go ahead. Hi. Good, e uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, maybe to follow up on Coastal GasLink, um, it appears that you know the project continues to progress. Um, in TransCanada, thoughts. You know, previously about partnering uh, with further with the First Nations. Um, first part of my question is: Is, is TransCanada still interested in divesting some of the equity ownership? And two, you know, what would the First Nations you know like to see before you know committing to become an equity partner? Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Uh, this is Bevan again. Um, you know, we've we've had uh, unprecedented support from the Indigenous communities along the route, and our team is doing a. A real good job progressing construction, um, as I just mentioned in response to the previous question. Um, and we've got 20 agreements successfully implemented uh, with with the nations along the right of way, and we're still moving forward and progressing our our um, our negotiations around bringing in indigenous communities in an equity participa participation mode. Um, you know the. The reason for that is, you know, we share the, the same values as our Indigenous partners, and we believe have, working alongside them in an equity participation role um, is, is the right thing to do for the project. Great, thanks. Um, and maybe just to follow up on capital allocation and some balance sheet I, I talked about previously. Um, the slide that you guys provided kind of implies, you know, a couple billion, you know, need in debt issuances over the coming years through 2025. 
just kind of curious, you know, post-2025, should we see a free cash flow inflection after dividends? And then maybe just on the KXL recoveries, could you provide, is, is there currently a reserve on the balance sheet as a contingent asset? Or just kind of curious if you could provide a quantifi- quantifiable range of, you know, potential expected outcomes. Thanks. We'll get Glenn to uh, start on the second of those questions, and then, uh, Francois, I'll take the first part of that. Go ahead, Glenn. Thanks, Brian. Uh, yeah, as far as the contractual recoveries uh, on KXL, they are sitting on our balance sheet as an asset, as a receivable, and uh, we will realize those uh, under the terms. And uh, with respect to, uh, you know, inflection points, uh, you know, I, I think – uh, at the moment, uh, our view of uh, our desired steady state for um, our balance sheet metrics is a, a debt to EBITDA of uh, 4.75. And, uh, you know, it's also important for us to be living within our means. And so we, th- we think of that as our run rate uh, of capital expenditures of uh, five, uh, $5 billion a year uh, after, um, you know, uh, servicing our dividends from our free cash. We'll have a very stable, um, uh, you know, long-term debt uh, sum uh, if we proceed on that basis, and you'll see us sort of grow into that leverage over time. Um, to the extent we are comfortable in the future with that steady state and uh, opportunities uh, present themselves for us to return capital to our shareholders, we'll weigh those against opportunities to invest additional capital. I can tell you right now we are very bullish on the opportunity set that's in front of us. As we've said before, we believe we can maintain our risk preferences and our historical um, rates of return, uh, even uh, in allocating capital to uh, energy transition. And uh, if we're able to do that, we think we are creating value for our shareholders and would be um, very comfortable allocating that capital um, at that point in time. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes the question and answer session. If there are any further questions, please contact Investor Relations at TC Energy. I will now turn the call over to Francois Poirier. Please go ahead, Mr. Poirier. Thank you very much. Uh, I want to appreciate. Uh, I want to say thanks to everyone for your attention today. We're working feverishly to try and uh, tighten up our prepared remarks and shorten our calls going forward. So appreciate all all of the good feedback we've gotten. Um, you know, in closing, uh, a couple of things, and then I'm going to pass it over to Joel for, for just a quick minute. Firstly, um, this, you know, we will continue our disciplined approach around capital allocation uh, and adhere to our risk preferences. We see no reason for us to be relaxing our risk preferences to be able to allocate our $5 billion a year of free cash flow. And secondly, as I said, the, pro- the opportunity set is substantial, and we are really well positioned uh, the more we speak to our customers about how to help them reduce uh, their emissions, uh, the more opportunity we see for ourselves to play a role in, uh, in energy transition. Uh, Joel, over to you for a few closing remarks. Sure. Thanks, Francois. Um, so last fall, David Mineta informed, of, uh, informed us of his plan to retire at the end of March of this year. Uh, David has been with the company for over 38 years, uh, beginning in our Toronto office, and has been in investor relations for the past uh, 26 years. So, David, based on my math, um, this means that you've participated in over 100 uh, quarterly calls, including today, uh, during your wonderful career here. And I can't count the number of, of meetings you know, inv- with investors well into the thousands throughout your career. You know, David's unwavering professionalism, dedication, and reputation, not only here at TC Energy, but obviously in the investment community, is just unparalleled. 
So on behalf of uh, current and past management, David, I want to say thank you for a wonderful career, and we wish you all the best in your well-deserved retirement. Well done. That's great. Thanks, Joel. Much appreciated. This concludes today's conference call. You may disconnect your lines. Thank you for participating, and have a pleasant day. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.